This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Tommy John, card number 611, 611 pitcher for the New York Yankees. Okay, Tommy John, a name we all know. But before we get to that, we do have some follow-up on last week's episode on Kevin Elster. Matt, last week we talked about Kevin Elster, star, question mark, of Little Big League. I watched this movie for the first time since 1994. It was fine. It was pretty funny. Pretty good. I got a few notes. Billy is the kid who ends up owning the twins. His mom is played by actress Ashley Crow. In real life, Ashley Crow's son is Pete Crow Armstrong, who plays for the Cubs A-level team. He was one of the Mets prospects traded for Javi Baez in 2021. So real life baseball fun fact there for Little Big League. Also tying this back to Kevin Elster and Cousin Wolf, early in the movie, Billy is engaged in a trivia battle with his grandfather, played by Jason Robards. One of the questions is, who was the first black player in the major leagues? It's, of course, meant as a little bit of a trick question because the quick answer would be Jackie Robinson, who broke the color barrier. However, the correct answer is Moses Fleetwood Walker, who played in the major leagues in the late 1800s. Cousin Wolf, who wrote the song about Kevin Elster, also has a song about Moses Fleetwood Walker and Jackie Robinson, for that matter. So another plug for him and his great music. And we will include a link to the Moses Fleetwood Walker song in the show notes. So how was Kevin Elster as an actor? He was pretty good, particularly the baseball scenes. It really showed his glove and his ability to kind of make things look real. He was doing some flips with his glove hand to the second baseman, turning double plays. He hit a line drive that went straight at the camera. The baseball scenes were really good, but he also got a few lines. And I imagine if he hadn't been good, they wouldn't have given him any jokes. But he had a few good lines, a few good jokes that are well-delivered. He also is involved in a trick play in which the twins trick Ken Griffey Jr. Ken Griffey Jr. is kind of like a a villain in this movie, which for the mid-90s, having Ken Griffey Jr. as the bad guy is like, that's quite a quite a flex. And Elster gets to do a little wink after tricking Jr. before tagging him out. He does a pretty good job of that. There's also a an article that is the oral history of Little Big League. Elster said he had the best time. Apparently, all of the quote-unquote actors took up residency at a local bar, and Kevin would laugh at the MLB players who had cameos because they couldn't go hang out at the bar afterwards because they had to stay in shape. It was a nice little break for Kevin while he was between teams, and he said, I'm proud of it. It fills me with joy. It brings back unbelievably great memories. Well, thank you for that review, David. What service did you use to find the movie? The movie was on MLB TV, and I watched it through Fubo TV, but I had to tape it in advance. It was it was a whole production. Of all the streaming services that I own, I, I was kind of shocked that it wasn't on any of them on demand. Well, folks, if you have any recommendations for baseball movies that you'd like to submit 
uh, please send it to the mailbag. You can email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. But now on to this week's card and Tommy John. Why are we talking about Tommy today? This card was a recommendation from a Facebook friend of the show. Thank you, Mark B. On Facebook, Mark is a big Yankees fan. And while his baseball hero was Don Mattingly, and Don Mattingly was a namesake of one of his kids, he appropriately threw us a curveball and suggested another Yankee from Indiana, Tommy John. Better known as a surgical procedure or a brand of internet underwear, maybe, he was a really good pitcher. That surgery was really groundbreaking and led to an incredible career that really should not have lasted into the 1988 top set, but we're glad it did. He has a Sabre bio by Michael Fallon, so thank you, Michael, for your work on that. Let's go to the front of 611. We have Tommy John. He's ready to deliver. He is very focused in his face. This is a 44-year-old man, a young 44. Tommy John is here. That glove looks like it was also made in 1943. It's old, grimy. Tommy was a, a crafty left-hander here, as we see him. Looks like he's throwing a curveball. I don't know. I, I I see a guy this age, and I'm looking in the mirror, David. <laughs> That's what I said. He's a young, a young 44. A spry 44 <laughs> years old here. My goodness. He's got so much life ahead of him. <laughs> he does. Well, at this point, he has two years left in his major league career after this card comes out. This Yankees uniform is the classic plain grays which I don't like. It's very generic. Pinstripes would have been a slimming look for Tommy here, but he's still throwing the ball. He's still 25 years into a baseball career that likely should have ended years prior. Good looking card. Good action shot. Now let's go to the back of 611. And I feel like this card almost weighs twice as much as a normal card, David, from how much is printed on it. We have Tommy John, six foot three, two hundred pounds, left-handed thrower and right-handed batter, signed by the Indians in 1961, born May 22nd, 1943 in Terre Haute, Indiana, with a home in Anaheim, California. I'm pretty sure that Tommy is our oldest player that we've discussed on the podcast thus far. Phil Necro may have been a little bit older, but he didn't have his own card in the set. Matt, something that jumps out at me here, there's so many stats. There's also a line here for on disabled list. And he had two more seasons after this, so I don't even want to think about his 1989 or 90 tops card. I don't know if he had a 90 tops <laughs> card. How could they do it? How could the designers even do it? It's so small. I've had this zoomed up on the Jumbotron to 150%. This is Jumbo Jumbotron just to be able to read the print on this card. Anything on his stat line jump out at us here? couple seasons leading the league in shutouts. <laughs> if you scan the right-hand column of ERA, you see a lot of seasons in the twos, a lot of seasons in the threes. You only see a handful in the fours or higher. And after that many seasons, that's just a good sign for a pitcher. Yep. And he was a very strong pitcher for a long time. When I think of Terre Haute, Indiana, I think of a 2001 Onion article back in the day <laughs> when... I would go to Tower Records and pick up the physical copy of The Onion. One of my favorite articles was GarageBand actually believes there is a Terre Haute sound, which includes the quote, bottom line, we all just like to rock. I think that's what sets Terre Haute apart from the Danvilles and West Lafayettes of the world. That and the fact that a lot of us have the same drummer. 
<laughs> but it references bands like the Larry Birds. Mm. Terre Haute is near the Illinois-Indiana border. Its name is derived from the French Terre Haute, or Highland, which reminds me of Miliwake, the good land. Named by fur trappers in the early 18th century, Terre Haute became the county seat of Vigo County, probably named for Vigo the Carpathian. Actually, it was named for Giuseppe Francesco Vigo, an Italian fur trader who aided the American colonial forces during the Revolutionary War. Indiana State University, home of the Sycamores and Larry Bird, is in Terre Haute. Other famous Terre Hautians include Birch Bayh, former U.S. Senator, son of Birch Bayh Sr., who was the Sycamores' head basketball and baseball coach in the 1910s. Birch Bayh was the father of one-time Indiana governor and later Senator Evan Bayh. Another famous basketball coach, not from Terre Haute, but coached at ISU, John Wooden, who was at Indiana State for two seasons before moving along to UCLA. Baseball Hall of Famer, 10 times National League stolen base leader Max Carey was born in Terre Haute in 1890. Motley Crue guitarist Mick Mars, and finally, five-time socialist candidate for president, founding member of the Industrial Workers of the World Union, later jailed for sedition. Due to World War I draft opposition, Eugene Debs was born in Terre Haute. It's a lot of names. Tommy John went to Gerstmeyer High School. That's a good name, too. Gerstmeyer. He graduated in 1961. Gerstmeyer High closed in 1971, combining with another school into North Vigo High School. Probably, again, go fight in Carpathians. John was a really good basketball player at Gerstmeyer. He averaged 20 points a game his senior year including a school-record 47-point performance. He had college basketball opportunities, including at the University of Kentucky under Adolph Rupp. On the baseball field, scouts liked the results that Tommy John was getting. He was 28-2 and in his high school career, but his coach told him that scouts want to see him throw the ball hard. Tommy wanted to throw curveballs because that was how he got outs and how he got that outstanding record. He had learned the pitch from Arlie Andrews, a friend of... His dad, who had pitched in minor league baseball, Arlie and his twin brother Harley, no, I'm not kidding, <laughs> what? are both in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. Arlie and Harley Andrews, get it? No way. Gerstmeyer High legends, <laughs> and Arlie taught Tommy John the curveball. So, uh, aside from having fantastic names, that's a a pretty good thing to have on your resume. Teacher of Tommy John. The scout who watched Tommy noted that he didn't have overpowering speed, and that was true. By the time the, that radar was available, Tommy was throwing in the mid to high 80s, so never really an overpowering pitcher. While the Cleveland scout labeled his fastball as not quite there, he had good off-speed pitches and good movement. And as you stated on the card, he was signed by Cleveland prior to the draft, so before the draft was even a thing, even though that scout was unimpressed, they signed him to a minor league deal. He was only in the minors in 61 and 62 and part of 63. We'll zip through that because we have a lot of years to cover here. Also, they're not listed on the card because, good Lord, there's nowhere you could fit them. His minor league career, he had some ups and downs. He said that he would try to throw everything too hard and he would often fall behind in the count. Then he would have to throw a fastball over the plate and, quote, get it creamed. And so he abandoned kind of that style that he had had in high school of getting everyone out, probably just thinking, I'm a professional now. I have to throw fastballs. 
But this resulted in his walks and runs going up. And then he had a coach who gave him some advice that probably wouldn't fly today, which is, quote, use about 80% of your power and save some for the later innings. No one would say that in 2022. But back in 1962, it seemed to work because Tommy learned how to pitch, not just throw hard, and got promoted in 1962 from single A all the way up to triple A. And then in 63, he starts rough and gets demoted. At double A, he performs well, has a 9-2 and record with a 1.61 ERA, and earns a September call-up with the Indians. He made his Major League Baseball debut in September, got a few starts, didn't get a win, but it was pretty deceptive, that line on the card. He had a 167 ERA plus in 20 innings. And this Cleveland team had a good young pitching staff, including Louis Tiant and sudden Sam McDowell. Tommy went 2-9 and nine in 1964. Coaches tried to get him to throw a slider, which didn't work out, and he got sent to AAA in July. After that season, Cleveland decided to put Tommy on the trade market. And he was part of a three-team huge trade that included some big names. Cleveland got slugger Rocky Calavito back on their team, and they received catcher Cam Carrion. Kansas City got a few players, including Gold Glove outfielder Jim Landis. And the White Sox got Tommy John, future Rookie of the Year Tommy Agee, and former All-Star catcher John Romano. Tommy joins a team that won 98 games and finished one game behind the Yankees and slotted into the White Sox rotation. The White Sox were competitive for the first couple years that Tommy was there, and he was an effective starter from 1965 to 68, going 48 and 36 with a 123 ERA+. He was still an average strikeout pitcher, but he was able to keep his walks and home runs down. In 1968, he started the year fantastic, earned a spot on the All-Star team for the first time in his career, and even though this was the year of the pitcher, Tommy's numbers still stand up. 161 ERA plus, valued at 5.6 war, which was good for eighth among American League pitchers. Even more impressive because he only started 25 games due to an incident against the Tigers, which we can drop in a clip here described by the great Ernie Harwell. One nothing Tigers lead. They got that run of the opening inning. The man who scored is up there now, waiting on a 3-2 pitch from John. Watch out! That one, uh just about hit him. I think Max a little perturbed. He's yelling out to Tommy John. Now he goes at him, and John tackles McCullough. Here comes Pete Ward in, Mickey Stanley. Salerno's there in the middle, and both dugouts empty, and the teams are going at it. Gates Brown is out there, and now the umpires are trying to separate the combatants here, and I think the situation has been still. John, I believe, has hurt his arm. So the situation, Tommy threw up and in at Dick McAuliffe, and McAuliffe thought it was thrown at his head. In the ensuing fisticuffs, Tommy John hurt his shoulder and ends up missing the last two months of the season, depriving him of a what probably would have been Cy Young caliber season in a normal year. But 68 was a, a good year for him nonetheless, even though he only th- threw in 25 games. He was still effective the next couple seasons in Chicago, even though the team lost nearly 100 games every year from 68 to 1970. By modern metrics, he was really good, valued at five war each season, the seventh most valuable pitcher over that stretch. Four of the guys ahead of him are in the Hall of Fame, Bob Gibson, Fergie Jenkins, Tom Seaver, and Gaylord Perry. But management lost confidence in him, and he didn't get along with Johnny Sane, who was the White Sox pitching coach, who again tried to tinker with 
Tommy's mechanics. After a disappointing 1971, the White Sox traded John to the Dodgers for another slugger, Dick Allen. This led to a second place finish for the Sox and an AL MVP for Dick Allen. This trade to the Dodgers, though, did lead to a rejuvenated Tommy John. The Dodgers told him his fastball wasn't a problem. He just needed to accept that he could throw breaking pitches and get people out with them and that he didn't need an overpowering fastball. It also helped that he was playing for winning Dodger teams and had a good defense behind him. In his first three seasons, those teams won 85 and then 95 games and then 102 games. Tommy went 40 and 15 in that stretch with a 289 ERA, which is a 119 ERA plus from 1972 through 74. But he didn't get to pitch in the playoffs for that 1974 Dodgers team due to an injury and a surgical procedure that now bears his name. Every time I read about this, it makes me cringe. And so apologies, queasy listeners. July 17th, 1974, a 31-year-old Tommy John has a 4-0 lead over the Expos. In the third inning, Tommy throws a fastball, and he said it felt like two bones had come apart in his arm. He said it was like no pain he ever felt before. He tried to throw again, and the pitch didn't make it to the plate. He said it felt like he had left his arm someplace else. It was as if my body continued to go forward and my left arm had just flown out to right field. The ball just kind of blooped over the plate when he would try to throw it. But this was the 70s. So Tommy thought, I'll be back on the mound by the second week of September, ready to go for the playoffs. Rub some dirt on it. Yeah. He had elbow problems since he was in Little League. And he said that there were games where he would throw a complete game and be unable to brush his teeth the next morning because he couldn't move his arm from the elbow. But this one was worse pain than he had felt before. But all they had was x-rays to look at the injury. And when they looked at the bone, it looked fine. When he went back to throwing a few weeks later, thinking everything had healed up, he was throwing at 75%. And it was initially reported as a ruptured ligament in his elbow. Dr. Frank Job, who was the Dodgers team physician at the time, had been a medic in World War II, went to medical school thanks to the GI Bill, and become a surgeon before consulting with the Dodgers starting in 1964. He had become friends with Tommy, so over the three years prior, they had developed a good relationship. Job explained that if this ulnar collateral ligament was completely torn in its middle, a standard surgery wouldn't help, and Tommy should find a good job and go back home. Instead, Job thought that perhaps a graft reconstruction of the ligament would help. And so this graft reconstruction of the ulnar collateral ligament is the surgery that was suggested, but nobody calls it that anymore. Job would take the palmaris longus tendon, which runs down the forearm, and reattach it to the elbow. Job said it was one in a hundred that Tommy would pitch again, but a zero percent chance if they didn't do the surgery. So Tommy said, I'm not finding a new job, so please fix it. And Job had done some tendon transfers before for polio patients. So this wasn't the first time that he had attempted something like it, but it was the first time that he had tried this particular ligament in this way. So Tommy was the guinea pig for him. John calls up his old teammate Hoyt Wilhelm just in case. (laughs) He said... He would come learn to throw a knuckleball if it didn't work. Meanwhile, his teammates thought this was a waste of time. Why go through this kind of surgery if 
there's such slim chances that it would ever work and that you'd ever be able to come back. It was unprecedented and nobody knew what the rehab would look like. Nobody knew what the timeline would look like. They used the tendon from his right arm and attached it to the left. So Tommy had surgery on both arms. And immediately after the surgery, he had to have another surgery to reroute the nerve in his pitching hand, which had been damaged in the first surgery. If they hadn't done that second, he might have had a a fully deformed left hand that was kind of stuck in a claw. Tommy sat out all of 1975, pitched a little bit in instructional league. His rehab process was kind of ridiculous by today's standards. He had no feeling in a couple of his fingers, so he's trying to pitch with his fingers taped together, throwing a ball against a wall. And he would just have five baseballs, throw five at a wall, go and pick them up. He said he must have looked insane to his neighbors. It's just a very different philosophy on physical therapy. <laughs> you know, just the thought of, well, just throw the ball against the wall and tape your fingers together so that you can hold a ball. Somehow it worked. This ad hoc, at-home physical therapy DIY. <laughs> he pitched six strong innings, giving up one run in a preseason exhibition against the Angels. He was supposed to pitch in the Dodgers' first home series. I thought it doesn't rain in Southern California, but this game got rained out. So he made his first start in Atlanta 639 days after his injury. That's a one year, eight months, and 30 days. He pitched five innings, gave up three runs, and got a loss. But maybe more importantly, he was back out there four days later, and four days after that, and four days after that. The more he pitched, the better he felt. He made 31 starts, pitched over 200 innings, went 10-10 and with a 3.09 ERA. Obviously, he gets the Sporting News National League Comeback Player of the Year Award and the Fred Hutchinson Award for Outstanding Character and Courage. And he's better than ever going into 1977. He's 34 years old, goes 20-7 and with a 2.78 ERA, finishing second in the Cy Young voting. He pitched a complete game, giving up only one run, in the decisive game four of the NLCS against the Phillies, got the win in that game over Steve Carlton, which sent the Dodgers to the World Series, and was an all-star in 1978 and got a win in the NLCS that year as well. The Dodgers lost both of those World Series to the Yankees. After the 1978 series, John decided to test free agency. Why not at this point? 35-year-old with a bionic arm, The Yankees had just won the World Series and had seen him in action, so they picked him up, raised him from $190,000 to $575,000 in 1979. He went 43-18 and over the next two seasons with a 125 ERA plus and a combined 541 innings. Each one of (laughs) it just gets more and more impressive. It's, It's pretty amazing. He was, and we'll get into this later, he was as good, if not better, after the surgery than he was before. He just kept putting up numbers. He made two more All-Star games, finished second and fourth in AL Cy Young voting. So he got top 10 Cy Young finishes in both leagues. In the strike short in 1981, he missed some time when a pretty bad accident impacted his family. In August of that year, John's two-year-old son, Travis, fell from a third-story window and hit his head on a car bumper. He was in a coma for 19 days. Tommy traveled back from the road to be with his son 
He would pitch if the Yankees were in town, but for a couple weeks he didn't travel with the team. Travis ended up walking out of the hospital on his own on September 13th, a pretty remarkable recovery. And the next day, Tommy pitched a complete game shutout against Milwaukee. He went 9-8 and that year. The Yankees made the playoffs and the World Series. He started two games in the series and made a relief appearance. He got one win in those three appearances, but in 13 innings, he only gave up one earned run. His old teammates, the Dodgers, face him in the World Series, and they come out on top this year. So for the third time in a Dodgers-Yankees World Series, Tommy John ends up on the losing side, and that was Tommy's last World Series. In 1982, he was still pitching well for the Yankees, well enough that the Angels, who were chasing for the AL West title, are willing to trade for a 39-year-old pitcher. And he pitched well for them down the stretch, had a complete game win in game one of the ALCS. He also took a loss in game four, throwing three wild pitches, giving up six runs, four of them earned. The Angels eventually lost to the Brewers, and this was Tommy John's last playoff appearance. He remained in California for a few disappointing years. In parts of four seasons, he had an ERA plus of 92. This was the first stretch in his career that was subpar and ended up released in 1985 when he signed with Oakland. His ERA was over six there, and he was released at the end of the season. I feel like this is the end, right, David? <laughs> uh, no, another comeback. There's another comeback. At the, and actually, it's at the very end. It's so small. It's at the very bottom of our card here. He went for a tryout with the Yankees, and he made the team in 1986. In 86 and 87 combined, he went 18-9. and nine in 46 games with a 117 ERA+. plus, So still pretty good at 44 years old. He was okay in 1988, but his ERA started creeping up. But even as he neared 46 years old, he impressed the Yankees coaches in 1989 and was named the opening day starter. He got a win, gave up only two runs, but then in the next nine games, he went 1-7 with an ERA over six, and the Yankees let him go. Yeah, he was quoted as saying, I think I could still pitch, but it's a young man's game. Yeah, 39 yeah. years old, 38 years old, the youngsters. So closing the book on Tommy John, 288 wins, seventh most among left-handed pitchers all time, 2,245 strikeouts, combined ERA of 334, and an ERA plus of 111. Total career war on baseball reference of 62.1, which is 53rd all-time among pitchers, and pitched in 26 seasons in the major leagues, which is second only to Nolan Ryan and Cap Anson. He made the all-star team four times, four times top 10 in the Cy Young. How about a retirement? Tommy did a bunch of things. He didn't invent underpants, sold <laughs> on the internet. And in fact, he at one point threatened to sue Tommy John underwear, who are not a sponsor of this show, but he said it would have cost too much to get a lawyer, so he decided against it. He did a bunch of things, some TV work, coaching, motivational speaking. He's lived a few different places, North Carolina, California, and recently moved across the country from California to Florida. He was married in 1970 to a woman named Sally Simmons. They had four kids. He has since divorced and remarried in the last few years. His children... Tamara, Tommy the Third, Travis, and Taylor. Tamara is married to former Bears long snapper Patrick Manley. Travis was the son who faced that coma 
and healed fully to live a healthy life. Taylor was a theatrical performer as a child, playing Petit Gavroche in a touring performance of Les Mis. He was a teaching assistant as an adult and sadly died by suicide in 2010. Tommy did work with suicide prevention nonprofits to honor his son and to help others in a similar situation. Recently, Tommy has had some health issues. He had pretty bad complications from COVID-19. And he initially had COVID in 2020, and when interviewed, he downplayed the severity of his illness, said he was on oxygen, but he didn't need it. He would leave the hospital if the doctors would let him, said he wouldn't get a vaccine, etc., etc. Some disinformation and some seemingly denial of symptoms. And this viewpoint seems to have been pushed by his son, Tommy III. Tommy III is a chiropractor, not a medical doctor or immunologist. He espouses some bizarre theories on many medical issues, but most recently is focused on COVID, saying there is no pandemic, no one has COVID, and other conspiracy nonsense. Meanwhile, while Tommy III was spreading misinformation, his dad was getting progressively more and more sick from COVID complications, including multiple hospitalizations, blood clots in his lungs that required surgery. He ended up paralyzed in his lower extremities from Guillain-Barre syndrome. In 2022, he seems to be on the mend. This June, he donated his cast from his original surgery to the Smithsonian Institute. He was supposed to be there in June for a ceremony at the Smithsonian. And it seems that his new wife, Cheryl, has helped nurse him back to health. And it also seems that Cheryl has some different ideas about vaccines than her stepson. She said, he's getting it. Trust me. Later, referring to his son, she said, she told Tommy, we're not going to tell Tommy the third you're getting it, but you're getting it. So I hope that Tommy continues to improve and listens to Cheryl instead of his son, because maybe he can get another chance at the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, do you think that Tommy John will get in? He got 31% of the vote in 2009, his final year on the ballot. He was on the 2020 Modern Baseball Era Committee ballot. And 12 votes were required for induction. Tommy was among the players who got fewer than three. Should he be in the Hall of Fame? I'm of two minds here. He had some pretty ridiculous counting stats due to his longevity. He won 288 games in his career. 124 of them were before the him surgery, and 164 were after, including all three of his 20-win seasons. Of his six best years... Three were before the surgery in his 20s, and three were after the surgery in his late 30s. He was a very good postseason pitcher. He went 6-3 with a 2.65 ERA, but he never won a World Series. He limited home runs, kept the ball down, wasn't overpowering, and was just really consistent for a long time. You're kind of stereotypical crafty lefty. He's 8th all-time in games started with 718th in batters faced, 20th in innings, 26th overall in wins. But the stat that matters most to me is from friend of the show, Adam Dorowski, and the Hall of Stats, and that is that he has a Hall of Stats rating of 105. And if I recall, David, anyone with a, over 100 should be in the Hall. The Hall of Stats replaces the 240 Hall of Famers with the top 240 players of all time based just on stats. And... 
John is ranked 232 on that list, ahead of Willie Stargell and Whitey Ford, just behind Mark Burley and early win. So I think that's a pretty strong case. I think that the the algorithm says he should be in. He is right on the border there. Tommy never led his league in wins, ERA, strikeouts. He made just four all-star teams and never won a Cy Young award. But if he hadn't missed all that time to injury and half of 1981 due to the strike, as well as some time missed due to his family issues, he would have had 300 wins, which seems like a bar that a lot of voters look at. But also, if he hadn't had the surgery that necessitated missing that season, who knows what would have happened? He might not have even continued his career. He had a 62 overall wins above replacement, which is below average for a Hall of Fame pitcher, and he never had that one huge season. So how much of a bonus do you give Tommy John for being the namesake of a surgery that continued the careers of hundreds of pitchers? Is that enough to get him into the Hall of Fame? I think combined with the counting stats, in my mind, I think Tommy John being in the Hall of Fame is not offensive to me. It it continues to tell the story of baseball. And having his name on the wall, I think, would help tell the story of why he was important and why that, that surgery was important. However, Tommy and his doctor were celebrated by the Hall of Fame. Sports Illustrated said, One man's stubbornness and another man's brainstorm changed the game of baseball. Tommy came up at a time when surgery meant the end of your career, And there was this distrust of surgeons, and you just had to play through the pain. But Tommy trusted Frank Job, and he refused to give up on pitching. And Frank Job, who was born on today's date, July 16th, 1925, passed away in 2014 at the age of 88. His surgery extended the careers of 500-plus pitchers, but he first tried it on Tommy John. Job said that it could have been called the Sandy Koufax surgery if he was smart enough to do it 10 years earlier. Koufax had said, why didn't you do that on me? He later performed shoulder surgery on Oral Hershiser that extended Hershiser's career, and his work was honored by the Hall of Fame in 2013, shortly before he passed away. There was an ESPN 30 for 30 short called Frank and Tommy that's well worth a watch that talks about the surgery and talks about the relationship between these two. And Frank Job said of his patients, sometimes it just makes you want to cry watching these guys go on to do great things. And Tommy John said of Frank Job, there are a lot of pitchers in baseball who should celebrate his life and what he did for the game of baseball. I think there should be a medical wing in the Hall of Fame starting with him. And I think what this really tells me in light of Tommy's recent health issues is that we should all find an expert, a real expert who we trust. And I think that the that trusting non-experts can be dangerous. And Tommy trusted Frank Job to do his surgery, and it extended out his career and made him borderline Hall of Fame. And I think that it's good advice for all of us. No doubt about it. Although we do plenty of research here (laughs) at the 1988 Tops podcast. Do not trust your own research when it comes to medicine. Or your chiropractor's Uh, son. (laughs) Or your chiropractor's son. In this case, uh, we want to uh, thank the expert, Michael Fallon, who wrote the Sabre bio. And David, thank you for bringing us the story today. And thank you to you at home. If you would like to order a three-pack of Cool Cotton Relaxed Fit 6-inch boxers, just reach out to us on Twitter. You can find us at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.